think it's pretty safe to say nearly all of us are suckers for Cinderella stories. I especially love true Cinderella stories. And what I love most is reading the before, the backstory, the early failures of men like Lincoln and Edison and Churchill. The hymn Amazing Grace takes on new meaning when you read the backstory on John Newton, the slave trader. To read that Einstein's teachers considered him a dull child, or Walt Disney devoid of creativity. But not all Cinderella stories turn out during the lifetime of the person. One such person was the painter Van Gogh. In his lifetime, he painted 900 paintings. He sold just one. It was only after his death his genius was unpacked. Van Gogh is a bit like the person we focus on in this episode. Saul of Tarsus, or Paul. Saul was his Jewish name, Paul his Roman name. Since he's almost always referred to as Paul, let's just go with Paul going forward. We heard first about him in the previous episode. Here's what we know about him so far. He was a part of the Sanhedrin, the 71 men who ruled Israel's religious machine, and they ruled it with an iron fist. This is the group that had badgered Jesus for three plus years and condemned him. This is also the group that hauled in Peter and the rest of the apostles in Acts chapter 5. After Peter's defense, they were ready to kill all the apostles until one highly respected rabbi in their group, Gamaliel, suggests an alternative. It's quite likely Paul was sitting there that day. We'll discover he was one of Gamaliel's long-time apprentices and perhaps his star student. We also learned in the last episode, Stephen was dragged in front of this same tribunal. Saul is definitely here for this one, and he's a part of the killing party. Luke tells us those stoning Stephen laid their coats down at the feet of this guy, Paul. Some think him holding the coats mean he was the lieutenant in charge of carrying out the execution. At the beginning of chapter 8, Paul was in complete agreement with stoning Stephen, and that day a great persecution broke out in Jerusalem. We're told Paul acts like an uncaged beast, a wild man. He's going everywhere to devastate the believers in Jesus, house to house, hauling off both men and women. God alone knows what happened to them from there. Now a little bit more of Paul's backstory. He was born in Tarsus. Tarsus was a prominent city in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It was the most influential city in the area all the way back to the time of Alexander the Great. Paul was born right around 1 AD, so he's just over 30 years old at the time of Acts chapter 9. Paul tells us in Acts he was a student of Gamaliel. Gamaliel's recognized in even Jewish secular literature as perhaps the greatest rabbi of the time. And likely at age 12 or 13, Paul joined him for at least six years. Over those six years and beyond, Paul became a master of the Old Testament law. A lawyer. That's what lawyers were. Law experts. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives us a bit more of his backstory. Paul compares himself to highly religious, pharisaical Jews. He says simply this, compared to those guys, I was a curve wrecker. Then he gives his resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Check. I'm an Israelite. Check. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, that one little tribe embedded in Judah, the more faithful tribe. Check. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews and a Pharisee of Pharisees. That's essentially saying if you look up Hebrew and Pharisee in the dictionary, you might see my picture. 
As to my zeal, I was a persecutor of this Jesus group, the church. And as to the law, I was, how shall I put this, found blameless. I kept it all and I kept it well. From this statement, we learn that he was from a devout Jewish pharisaical family. That's Pharisee in all caps. He was born a Roman citizen. He's going to bring that up several times in his own defense. After his training with Gamaliel, his career path as a lawyer was set. He was an expert in the law. He'd be the guy you called if you wanted an interpretation on one of the nuances of Mosaic law or the tradition and rules that had been built up around it. From early church documents, we also get an idea of what he looked like. At least four separate writers claim he was extremely short, citing three cubits as his height. That's about four feet six inches tall. You'd doubt that, except, but four separate writers state that. They also state he was bald, crooked-legged, and crooked-nosed. Other writers claim he had pomegranate red complexion and a unibrow, a thick, bushy, grown-together eyebrow. We get more clues about Paul in his own letters. In 2 Corinthians, he claims, his critics claim, his letters are weighty, profound, but his appearance is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. This leads some to believe Paul had a speech impediment. We get another clue in the letter he wrote to the Galatians. Paul may have had trouble with his eyes. Paul writes to the Galatians, You would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. This may have been an idiom about their exceptional love, except for what he writes at the end of his letter. See with what large letters I'm signing this letter. I should explain quick. Paul never scribbled down his letters. He used a secretary. That was common practice for teachers and lawyers. But at the end of his letters, he would pick up the pen and scribble his name or signature or maybe a short blessing. The fact that he admitted he was writing his name with large letters indicates to some he couldn't see much at all. When we meet him in Acts 8, Paul is a brilliant, young, religious zealot. And he's violent. Some think Napoleon complex, compensating for his small stature. The only problem with that is Napoleon was a foot taller. Luke describes him as a zealous, religious killing machine. But something happens that changes all that. Something sudden and utterly transforming. A change so great it perplexes historians and theologians to this very day. For the next 30 years until he's beheaded by Nero, Paul becomes the greatest apologist and theologian for the gospel of Jesus Christ in church history. He likely writes at least 13 of the 21 New Testament letters we will examine. He is largely responsible for the spread of Christianity into Asia Minor, Macedonia, Greece, Italy, and even Spain. He's a tireless church planter and a mentor of the men who will pastor these churches after his death. What happened to Saul of Tarsus to change him from a Christian killing machine to, apart from Jesus, being the second most influential person in Christianity? Acts chapter 9 tells us, Paul was breathing out threats and violence. He'd essentially eradicated the Christians from Jerusalem, other than the apostles. How they got past Paul, we're not told. But Paul isn't finished. He convinced the chief priest in Jerusalem to write letters giving him authority to go around arresting Christians and bringing them back for trial. His first stop is Damascus, where many of the Christians have taken refuge. 
As he neared Damascus, a brilliant light falls from heaven, and Paul falls to his face. Then a voice speaks up, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul replies, Who are you, sir? I'm Jesus, who you are persecuting. Get up, go into the city and await my instructions. The men with him hear the voice, but they see no one. And speaking of see no one, that's what happened when Paul gets up. He is bat blind. He's led into the city and spends the next three days without touching food or water, trying to grasp what just happened on the road with his brilliant but twisted mind. Meanwhile, in the city of Damascus, God speaks to a man named Ananias. He gives Ananias the street and the house where Paul of Tarsus is staying. He tells Ananias, Paul is praying right now. I've given him a vision and I've dropped your name. I told him you're coming to him to give him back his sight. I'm sure Ananias loved to hear that, his name being dropped by God. Ananias gives God a little information. He says, Lord, I've heard the terrible things this monster has done in Jerusalem. He has arrest warrants for anyone in Damascus who calls on your name. God interrupts Ananias. Go and do this. He's a chosen instrument of mine. He'll take my message to Israel, to nations, and he will stand before kings. Then God adds, and I will show him how much he will suffer for me. I'll come back to that. Ananias trudges down the street to where Saul is staying. With butterflies in his stomach, and I'm sure a lump in his throat, he speaks, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me that you might be filled with the Spirit and get your sight back. Instantly, Paul was filled with the Helper, the Spirit, and something like scales fell from his eyes so he could see. He immediately was baptized and stayed for a few days in that house. Then he shows up at the Damascus synagogue. Talk about a shocker. He stands up and says this, Jesus is indeed the Son of God. The Christ followers there are dumbfounded. Isn't this the guy who is coming here to arrest us? Paul, the religious zealot, turns this zeal toward Jesus. This brilliant lawyer preaches proofs that Jesus is the promised Christ. It's not long before the religious leaders realize he is now public enemy number one. So in the middle of the night, some of his new believer friends lower him in a basket through an opening in the Damascus city wall. Paul heads to Jerusalem. No believer left there will associate with him either. But Mr. Encouragement, Barnabas, takes him under his wing and takes him to the apostles. There Barnabas tells them what happened to Paul on the road. The apostles trust him and celebrate. Paul lingers with them. One can only imagine the conversations. Then Paul starts preaching in Jerusalem boldly. Talk about whiplash among the citizens and religious leaders. Immediately they plot his murder. Again, Paul is sneaked out of town, sent to Caesarea, and then shipped back to Tarsus. Paul spends most of the next 15 years in obscurity. In the Galatian letter, he mentions that he went away to Arabia. From some clues he gives in his letters, some think he went to Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law of God. Most think it took this brilliant mind time to work out his thinking. Jesus himself had said, everyone when he is fully taught will be just like his teacher. I think Paul was getting his synapses reprogrammed. But after those 15 years of obscurity, Paul comes out in a big way. For the next 15 years, he is a church-planting, letter-writing theologian, pastor-training machine. 
You'll get plenty of proof of this as we work our way through his amazing letters. When God told Ananias to go and lay hands on Paul, God said, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bring the gospel to nations and kings. Up till now, the gospel has penetrated Jerusalem and spread to Judea and Samaria. It will be primarily through the work of Paul that it will spread as Jesus commanded to the ends of the earth. The second part of that statement was, he must suffer many things for my namesake. I'd like to give you a little taste of what that suffering looked like in his 15 years as a church planning missionary. Paul himself writes this in his second letter to the church in Corinth. He says this, I've been beaten times without number. I've often been in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent adrift at seas. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, robbers, my countrymen, and from the Gentiles. I've had dangers in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, and among false brothers. I have been in labor and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, and often without food, and in cold and exposure. And apart from these external things, I also have the daily pressure of the churches I have planted. Also in his second letter to the Corinthians, he said that he was given, quote, a thorn in the flesh, unquote something he described as a messenger of Satan to torment him, something to keep him humble. There's been much speculation about what this thorn was. Some think it was his eyes. Some think it was a serious speech impediment. Some think it was loneliness. Members of the Sanhedrin, both Sadducees and Pharisees, were nearly always married men. In the first letter to the Corinthians, he writes, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as the rest of the apostles and Peter? Some think Paul was married, but no longer. Did she die? Was she perhaps murdered? Or did she leave him when he got Jesus' religion? Personally, I wonder if it wasn't bone-deep discouragement. As we go through his letters, we'll see him dogged by a group of legalistic Jews who seem to take great joy undoing every single thing Paul has tried to do for Jesus. Paul's conversion from a Judaistic zealot to a passionate apostle for Jesus is still a head-scratcher for people today. How is it this brilliant, zealous man could turn on a dime? Acts chapter 9 gives the explanation. The dime was the voice of Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then the filling of the Holy Spirit three days later. In the first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul says, Jesus appeared, last of all, to one untimely born. He appeared to me also. His life was turned 180 because of a visit from Jesus. Paul and his journeys to take the gospel to the ends of the earth will be the focus of Acts chapters 13 through 28. But for now, we return to Peter, the rock, whom Jesus will use to open the door of the church to the next group of believers, the Gentiles, and we'll look at how God used Peter to do that in our next word picture.